This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. Joining me, as always, is the president, co-founder of the Reformed African American Network, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, how's it going, sir? Greetings. Merry Christmas. Well, I get never mind. Scratch that because this is going to come out after that. But greetings. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Excellent. Great. Now we have a special guest today. I'm very excited about this episode, Jamar. Brother, I'm telling you, what a great way uh, to cap off a string of really good podcasts uh, with our guest today. I'm thrilled. I've read his work, accessed it in multiple venues, heard him speak personally, had the pleasure of meeting him um, just this past year in 2016. And so, yes, hey, one of these days, I'm telling you, stick with me and uh, you'll you'll meet some amazing folks. This is so true. As Jamar mentioned, we have a special guest. His name is Andy Crouch. If you are unfamiliar with him, Shame on you. Consider this your introduction. (laughs) (laughs) He's the executive editor of Christianity Today. He's also a prolific writer who has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and other publications. He's probably one of the most important writers of our generation. He's written Playing God, um, Culture Making, and also his most recent book, which is one of my favorite books of 2016, Strong and Weak, Embracing a Life of Love, Risk, and True Flourishing. He's also a husband and a father. Andy Crouch, thank you so much for joining us here on Pass the Mic. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here. So glad we finally got to do it. Yes. <laughs> now, for those who just know know about your writing, you're also a musician, correct? That's true. That's now, true. I can fool put, some of the people some of the time, at least. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm going to put you on the spot because your bio mentions that you draw inspiration from, among other styles and genres, jazz and gospel. Yeah. So yeah. I've got to ask you, <laughs> Who is your most influential jazz and or gospel artist? Oh man, um, I uh, it's hard to avoid Richard Smallwood. Uh, oh, I think. Oh, uh, nice. <laughs> I just uh, I think that's a, sort of the the most sublime. <laughs> phrase is amazing. The whole twentieth century kind of uh, modern gospel tradition. So, I think that's probably what I would say. Man, A oh, plus said, answer. He said right Richard Smallwood, Jamar. A oh, plus. That's so, good. That's so good. Okay, okay, we're does it get better? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to restrain myself. Let's move on. Let's. Move yeah, because I was gonna ask him about like rap and hip hop. Come on, that'd be interesting. Oh man, don't do it to me. <laughs> so, Andy, we have to ask you. It's been a very interesting calendar year. A lot of things going on in this culture and personally for you, personally for us, what's giving you hope and inspiring you in this season of your life? Mm. Well, this season of my life, that's an interesting, I think that's an important part of the question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 48. Uh, and so I'm, 
in the middle of life, uh, in the middle of my adult life and work, I think two things give me the most hope and inspiration right now. One is simply people. Um, and, and, and two kinds in a way of people that are in my life. And one is I have friends who have been in my life for 20 or 30 years, which is just amazing. Um, the depth of friendship that I, that I've been able by the grace of God and through a lot of, uh, my own foolishness, uh, but also a lot of God's goodness to sustain these friendships. So it's, it's those kind of deep lasting relationships that just keep bearing fruit. And then also I have the amazing gift, uh, between my job at CT and just my work as a writer and speaker of meeting so many people every year, um, like Jamar this, uh, summer, I guess it was right. And just, I, I am so encouraged by the people I meet, <laughs> uh, in, in the church of Jesus Christ. Also, to some extent, people of goodwill all over, but especially people who are really shaped by the gospel. So that would be one, one thing, just people in relationships. And the other is just that at 48 years old, I still feel like I am finding new depth and beauty and coherence and truthfulness in the gospel and discovering how it speaks to everything just endlessly fruitfully. I'm not getting bored at all <laughs> uh, with, mm. you know, this finite, we have a finite set of texts, right? In a way, we have 66 books in our Bible. And you would think after some amount of time, you'd be like, well, I kind of know how that works. Like I've been preparing, I'm going to be speaking uh, in the new year, early in the new year at a conference that's focusing on Luke 1 through 3. And you know, so I've just been going back and rereading that. And it is just astonishing what you notice that you've never seen, even though in one way or another, you've probably read that, that text every year of your adult life. So yeah, the people and the endless fruitfulness of this story that we get to be part of would be maybe some notable things. That's really good. Now, your new book, uh, Strong and Weak, it's all about the relationship between authority and vulnerability. And as I mentioned earlier, it's one of my favorite books of last year. Uh, what led to this topic capturing your imagination to the point of you writing about it? Huh. Well, actually, and this is kind of an example of something that I just have uh, been amazed at what keeps emerging as I keep kind of pulling on these threads that I started to think about really when I was writing my previous book, which is called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. And that book is a, a kind of ridiculously ambitious and dangerous, really, <laughs> attempt to give a positive account of power, a word that we often associate with violence and coercion. I think um, I think to be Christian is to have an alternative narrative of power that is rooted in creation rather than coercion, and that is actually hopeful rather than merely cynical. Um, and in the course of writing that book, uh, I came to think, you know, power in both its intended um, goodness and in its real world corruption is about the image of God or or the failure to bear the image of God. And so this has got me thinking for the past many years now about the image of God. And in, and in the course of thinking about that, I started thinking about, okay, what makes us different from other creatures that we can observe? Like, you know, what's, uh, we're in many, in so many ways, I mean, like 90 9% of our encoding DNA encodes the same genes as our nearest primate relatives. And, uh, you know, we're made from the same stuff as every other creature. We're mortal like every other creature. There's all these ways in which we are not different from um, the rest of the created world. And yet there's something unique about us. 
And I came to feel, even when I was writing Playing God, that that these two qualities of authority and vulnerability somehow captured two dimensions that matter and what's unique about being a human being. And so I, that's in that book. And I, I think it's helpful at the point where I, where I introduce, it, introduce it in that book. But uh, as I was speaking on this material and thinking more about it, because every time you speak about it, you think more about it, I realized, oh, what if we put these on a graph? <laughs> and as you know, this became the whole point of the book, Strong and Weak. It's it's basically about one picture where mm-hmm. we take authority and vulnerability <laughs> and ask, what happens if you plot these on a two by two kind of you know business school style? Um, and then you realize you can have authority and vulnerability together, but you can also, there's three other options, which are, you know, one without the other, one, the other one without the other, or neither one. And I just got so excited about how clearly this captured something that I'd said in much more abstract ways in playing God. So, uh, I've been thinking and and now writing and now kind of trying to speak and, and keep thinking and learning about all the ways that these two qualities, authority and vulnerability, have to go the, uh, have to go together, if the image of God is really going to be uh, seen in a flourishing way in the world. Sorry, long answer. No, that's that's <laughs> no, that is that's great. a little bit of the background at least. Well, I love that you mentioned the image of God because, in in my personal view, aside from the perennially important doctrines around salvation. Uh, wow. The, the doctrine of the image of God is one that's critically important for the 21st century. And I so, of course, I'm thinking a lot in terms of um, race and diversity and reconciliation. And yes. so kind of taking the image of God as a framework, um, how, how are you uh, fleshing out and applying that doctrine in terms of racial diversity and integration in your own personal life and, and maybe in your work at Christianity Today? Oh, wow. Well, there's a couple, I think you're absolutely right. This, um, I mean, in a way it's a way of recovering kind of a, a what we would call in, in seminary would call a, a Christian anthropology, which, which is, you know, essentially a doctrine of what it is to be human. And, you know, so one place to start is, uh, where Genesis one, uh, starts in its coupling of the image of God to two things. One is, uh, in the image of God, God created them male and female. God created them. Um, well, actually, sorry, I'm going to say three things about, <laughs> about that little moment. Um, the climax of, uh, the creation account in Genesis one, uh, first there's this, uh, creation male and female, um, which is interesting because it implies that God can't be imaged, uh, through a single homogenous, uh, representative, that that you have to have some differentiation to even represent an image God fully in the world. At least I I would suggest that's part of what's sort of lurking there to be discovered in, in the creation of human beings, male and female. Um, and then the, there is, of course, the fact that God, as God creates um, these uh, image bearers, suddenly for the first time in Genesis and completely out of nowhere in the monotheistic tradition that is the great kind of burden of the Hebrew religious insight, which is hero Israel, the Lord, your God is one. This God who is one speaks in the plural, let us create human beings in our image. And while I don't think we want to uh, load back onto that, all of Christian Trinitarian theology, and it's probably more court language or, you know, um, it's not necessarily, um, the, it's certainly not the Trinity in its fullness there. There is this surprising realization that God, the creator who is confessed by Israel to be one is at that climax of creation, uh, doesn't speak impersonally, but speaks personally and doesn't speak singularly, but speaks plurally (laughs) in the plural. And then immediately says, 
be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And this is where I think we get to the very building blocks of um, the genuine cultural diversity that was always intended by God from day one or um, (laughs) day six, um, that human beings were always meant to spread out over this really vast earth compared to our uh, scale of of life, even the time scale of our life, as well as the geography human beings can cover, pre-technological human beings. And this would inevitably mean that linguistic diversity would emerge, um, different human responses to the created world would emerge. You're going to have a very different set of repertoires, even for the kind of food you cook. Um, if you're in the steppes of Siberia versus if you're on the plains of, you know, Africa and, and then we, we see this double down on when in Genesis 11, uh, in Babel, human beings try to arrest this, uh, filling, spreading and filling, uh, try to settle down in one place using the technology they have, consolidate culture into a monocultural society. And God says, well, if they do this, nothing will be impossible, by which I think he means uh, the, they will be able to completely bring to a halt the realization of my image in the world and all the diversity that was intended. And that's why the languages are, are uh, created at that point to kind of enforce the diversity that always would have always would have resulted if we'd just been obedient in the first place. So, uh, I mean, that was, this is a very theological uh, answer or kind of biblical theological answer to the question you asked tomorrow. We can drill down on maybe what this looks like for us now, but I think realizing it is only in encountering difference, uh, that I begin to approach the manifold multifaceted, you know, multicolored to use that kind of crazy word. Is it from Ephesians polypoikolos, this word for the grace of God. That's like, it's like this many splendoredness of God that can never adequately be refracted into one gender and it can never adequately be refracted into one cultural tradition. And I actually need um, people from other cultures to, to help me grasp just at a beginning level how incredibly various and and yet utterly one God is. <laughs> I don't know. Does that make sense? That's how I'm thinking about it, at least. Okay, this is that was a wonderful theological answer. And I and that's where we have to start. And that realize for me in my personal journey, starting to realize that the Bible does speak to ethnic diversity, that in fact the Bible celebrates diversity was a, a large paradigm shift for me. And yes. and and I think in a lot of ways that Christians in the United States are, at least the ones I'm associated with, are coming to realize this more and more, that the Bible does speak to it, that does celebrate it, that that diversity and integration, um, unity within diversity are good things. And yet, we don't see it happening, I think, to the degree that we'd want it. And so I wonder if you can kind of incorporate some of your thinking about culture and... Because, you know, people talk a lot about the cultural captivity of the church, especially in regards to race and and these kinds of things. What do you think the breakdown is um, in those terms where we go from this beautiful theology that Scripture lays out about diversity to churches still remaining so largely segregated racially and ethnically? Mm. Well, this is actually a—it's a— tricky matter. I will. I, so let me give a little personal history here, um, which is that when I spent my first 10 years after college, while I was in seminary, and then for a number of years after seminary at, at Harvard uh, College as a campus minister with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And we had a reasonably multi-ethnic campus fellowship there, which has been a value of InterVarsities for, for several decades. Um, this was in the 1990s when I was there. 
and we actually came to believe that that part of what we were called to do was plant and em- empower the planting of a new uh, chapter of university at Harvard, specifically for Asian American students, um, because we realized that many students who come to a place like Harvard from an Asian cultural background, whether they're Asian born or American born, um, they need they need a place where they are culturally fluent um, and thus fully empowered. The thing about cultural mm-hmm. distinctiveness is it confers genuine creative power. We are uh, having this conversation in the English language, which fortunately all of us speak fluently. And so we're able to just freely, uh, relatively freely <laughs> within the limits, other limits, express ourselves, right? But if we tried to have, if I at least tried to have this conversation, I don't know, in French, which is the language I speak a little bit of, I mean, the I would be able to express myself in such a limited way and I'd constantly feel so constrained, right? Um, and and culture, language is just the most vivid and extensive in a way form of culture, but culture is all these things that give us a place to be ourselves in all of our fullness. So w- what I don't think we want for the church um, in, in, in North America or anywhere is, uh, is to insist that it not represent genuine cultural diversity and that there even be institutions that are culturally specific, right? Because that's asking people to step out of their cultural identity into, a, into this kind of neutral zone where none of us are fully fluent. So I'm less concerned. That, so this may sound... Well, I, I will quickly qualify what I'm about to say, but I, I am not intrinsically concerned that at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, there are people worshiping within their own cultural traditions. What I am concerned That's about good. is the history of exclusion, indeed violence, that is inscribed on top of that cultural diversity, the ethnocentrism and ultimately white, white supremacy and all of its associated legacies that that have that have caused that uh, genuine God-given cultural diversity to be um, kind of, well, to be segregated in the sense that we no longer have connections with one another. And one part of the body says to another, I have no need of you. Um, And especially those with power or privilege say to those who have less of those things, well, we don't really need any connection. We don't need to feel what they feel. We don't need to know what they know. We don't need to learn what they've learned about uh, the reality of God. So so I'm not intrinsically concerned by the fact that there's cultural uh, diversity, even at the institutional level. But what I am concerned about is the history of how how that's been maintained, um, especially from positions of dominant culture power, out of a sense, honestly, of fear, um, which is, I mean, we're all to some extent motivated by fear. It's one of the basic drives of human human beings. But when you have power combined with fear, you exclude <laughs> uh, and you That's you good. limit your encounter with others. And that is that is the history of white Christianity in the United States, starting when we insisted that Richard Allen and his friends sit upstairs in Philadelphia at the Methodist Episcopal Church. And that is that's what's really um corrosive uh in our in our current lack of connection with each other that is a fascinating answer and it's a very insightful answer away from the typical norms and cliches that we hear about diversity within the institution of the american church now kind of connecting to that in the book strong and weak with the quadrant that you mentioned 
I'm fascinated by your definition of injustice as it relates to the powerful and the vulnerable. Can you share that with our listeners? Right. So in in a nutshell, and this is why I, I keep coming back to this language of authority and vulnerability. In a nutshell, injustice is a social system where some people have authority without vulnerability at the expense of other people having vulnerability without authority. And I think the deep root of this, I mean, rooted all the way down in the created structure of the cosmos, <laughs> and I really almost, I, I literally mean that, is that if you want to live without vulnerability in the world as God has made it, you are asking for a world that doesn't exist. Um, there is no real life without risk. And I think of vulnerability as, as exposure to meaningful risk. But we human beings from the very first days of our fallen reality have had this dream of living with lots of authority and minimal vulnerability. But there's actually kind of a law of conservation of vulnerability in the cosmos, <laughs> which is to say you can't get rid of it. You can only relocate it. And injustice is injustice is always actually a story in a way. It's always got a narrative and a history of a group of human beings who somehow acquire enough power that they can temporarily realize this dream of authority without vulnerability, but that always happens at the expense of other image bearers being robbed of their authority and being loaded with vulnerability that's not theirs to bear, if that makes sense. Um, so, I mean, the most, well, one of the most vivid examples in the history of this continent is these planters who arrive from Europe, uh, especially England, um, say in Virginia, and they realize there's a lot of money to be made in tobacco. Uh, but tobacco and cotton further south are very, very labor-intensive crops, especially back then. And and but and their cash crops, which is very interesting, they they can be so unbelievably profitable if you can maximize the trade, the trading imbalance, the kind of arbitrage opportunities between here and the and the old world. Mm -hmm. So there's huge amounts of wealth to be made in a way that's not really true for raising. Uh, ordinary agricultural crops, but it's also highly labor intensive. Now that could be an invitation to a kind of authority and vulnerability together. Okay. Well, if you want to make that profit, do some really hard work, you and your family and you know, people you hire. But when they realize, Oh, this is going to require so much labor. We don't want to do the work. Uh, they discover a vulnerable population. They massively increase their vulnerability uh, by enslaving them uh, in, in on the coast of Africa, bringing them here, robbing them of all dignity and authority, uh, vastly increasing their exposure to risk, right? And all that is in order to reap these unbelievably high uh, kind of almost magical levels of wealth and profit from cash crops. Um, and so that system... That is injustice. In in you know, one historical example, happens all over the world. It's uh, it's happened in other ways in this continent and this country. Uh, it's when people seek authority without vulnerability, they can never get it without making other people vulnerable in a way they weren't meant to. And by the way, the only way you sustain that system is through violence. The only way you can keep that um, imbalance of authority and vulnerability in place is through direct or indirect violence. Mm. Man. Whew. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Salah, as the psalm says. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> Mic drop, as we say in 2017. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's, that's the transition. <laughs> um, speaking of authority with or without vulnerability um, and, and your definition of injustice, it sort of begs the question what Christians are to do in the face of folks who want to exercise authority without vulnerability and therefore expose other people to vulnerability they weren't meant to have. 
Right. And of course, you know, it'd be great if you could sort of apply that uh, to <laughs> the 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 person with the most political authority yes. um, office with the most political authority. And in light of that, you know, sort of how and it doesn't have to be specific to a particular person, but those kinds of oh, um, that's fine. I'm willing to go there. <laughs> <laughs> good, 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 good. Yes. So um, I was really intrigued, actually, by an article you wrote called "Speak Truth to Trump." Yeah, and you, you, you uh, I'm, I'm guessing a few folks maybe had responses to that. Just a wild guess. <laughs> um, but in it, you wrote, "There's a point at which strategy becomes its own form of idolatry—an attempt to manipulate the levers of history in favor of the causes we support." You go on to say, "Strategy becomes idolatry when we betray our deepest values in pursuit of earthly influence." And because yeah. such strategy requires capitulating to idols and princes and denying the true God, it ultimately always fails. And this is in the whole context of, you know, Christians doing something in the face of um, actions or comments that contradict biblical virtues. So can right. you talk about this in, in yeah. the context of authority <laughs> and power and vulnerability? Oh, man. So, well, you know, so every the, the reality is every community feels vulnerable. Every community. Uh, even the very, very powerful. I mean, I I once had this strange occasion of visiting um, a gated community uh, in the suburbs of Colorado Springs, Colorado, where there were two gates. There was an outer gated community, but then there was an inner gated community because apparently the people who own the like $5 million homes feel vulnerable when they consider their neighbors who only own like $2 million homes. Wow. I mean, it's, you know, it's just crazy, right? But the reality is every community feels feels vulnerable. And every community is vulnerable. Being vulnerable is part of what it is to be a human being. <laughs> uh, we can't get rid of it. So what we do is we we often look for strong men one way or another. And those are people who promise us, if you follow me or if you orient uh, your, your life and loyalty around me, uh, you'll have all the authority you want and, and we'll reduce your vulnerability. Mm. Um, and I think this is how... Um, you know, conservative Christians, and and I'm thinking largely of white Christians here, started to feel uh, after the sexual revolution in the 1960s, uh, the 1970s, they started to feel they they had previously been in a position of of relatively comfortable, unquestioned power. It's a little more complex than that, but it's it's let's say roughly right. They start to feel vulnerable, and they start to look for some ally that can. Um, give them the authority they want and reduce their vulnerability. And the Republican party basically holds itself out to the, what became the religious right in a way and says, if you make an alliance with us, we'll give you what you want. And we just would ask that you give us what we want, which is basically, uh, you know, business friendly policies and, you know, certain kinds of, uh, really more economic and political things rather than religious or social things. Uh, and that bargain, uh, to align yourself with, people who do not worship or serve the true God, <laughs> they serve mammon. Uh, the, the, the only idol for whom we know the name of the demon in charge of it is mammon. Uh, <laughs> mammon is the name of the, the demon, I think, as well as the idol itself. Um, but you're like, well, let's, I think we can work out a deal because you, this will make me feel like I have enough power to, to enforce or, or, you know, put into law my, uh, what I need to feel safe and given authority in this culture. Now, the thing is, these alliances never work, and this is true of all idols and all systems of injustice, is they're 
extremely unstable because they're based on a totally false account of reality. They're not actually going to produce the results you want, but they do kind of work at first. That's the way all idols get you hooked. And by the way, I, as you guys know, I use idolatry and injustice almost interchangeably because I think they're actually the same thing. And that's why the prophets talk about them as the same thing. So in the 1990s, you know, we get, uh, if you're one of these people, I, I don't really identify with this movement, the religious right, but but uh, put ourselves in their shoes, okay? We get the contract with America under Newt Gingrich and that Congress that promises us all these social policies that, that we feel are really, really, really need to be codified. Well, almost none of those actually get enacted, while almost all of the business-friendly and geopolitically, uh, you know, kind of U.S.-centric uh, foreign policies get enacted, right? So we don't really get anything we thought we were going to get. And the other side gets everything they wanted through our alliance with them. Mm. Well, the way all idols work is they, they work less and less well, and they actually demand more and more of you until eventually when the idol is to totally taken over your life, <laughs> it's not giving you anything it promised at the beginning. And it's, it's asking you to totally ab abdicate your image bearing identity. And this is what Donald Trump is, right? Because wow. Donald Trump asks these religious people, socially conservative people who were horrified when Bill Clinton had, you know, uh, his affair with Monica Lewinsky, uh, not just a fair abuse of power and all, all sorts of other things, properly horrified by that. Now they, they are almost forced by their, their allegiance to the system of power to excuse equally and, and much more pervasively exploitative, degrading abuse of power and people, which is who, who Donald Trump is because he's a total narcissist who has never had an image-bearing thought in his head in his adult life, uh, probably because of deep trauma suffered in his childhood and early teen years. Uh, I'm being very candid here. Uh, we'll see if I still have a job hey. after all. Uh, <laughs> we, yes. Keep going. Oh, keep man. going. But you got you your eight-man corner. <laughs> but do you see how this how this works? That uh, if you told the religious right in 1985 or whatever, you know, your pursuit of this kind of power is going to lead you to support someone who, who mocks everything you stand for in his life and in his words. <laughs> and you'll put up with it by then because you're so entrenched in the system of idolatry that you allied yourself to. It's the exact same thing that happened to the nation of Israel, which God said, don't make these alliances, these things that you think are strategic military alliances that will protect you in your highly vulnerable uh, geopolitical position in the ancient Near East are actually going to implicate you in idolatry, the worship of false gods, and ultimately the exploitation of your own people. Um, and But Israel does it anyway. And that's what leads eventually to exile. And I think we are heading into, one way or another, uh, a deep, uh, perhaps incredibly dislocating and damaging form of exile uh, for the church in America, for America as a nation, because God does not let this kind of idolatry and injustice go unjudged. Now, the only other thing I want to say, sorry, I know I feel like I'm going on and on here, but the only other thing I want to say, just to balance things out, is that the candidate, the major party candidate on the other side also embodied in every possible way, authority without vulnerability, by which I mean Hillary Clinton, her whole political career has been about minimizing her vulnerability, maximizing her authority. That's why she set up the secret email server 
uh, in her basement. And, and it's such an incredible picture of how when you seek to live in that corner, the authority without vulnerability corner, it never works for, for long enough. <laughs> it works for a while, but eventually you actually become more vulnerable because you sought that corner. And so the very thing you sought to control your image with, to control your public uh, presentation with ends up exposing every single stupid thing that any one of your advisors has ever put in an email. And it's all out there and becomes, you know, material for the public to weigh in their decision about who to vote for. Um, and, and so it's so like, we didn't have a choice between an idolatrous candidate and non-idolatrous candidate. We just had two different, very different temperamental versions of authority without vulnerability. And those were our major party options in 2016. Whew. Wow, that is. Uh, we are listening to Andy Crouch uh, go in and oh, drop the mic all over the place, uh, as we would say here at Pass the Mic. Now, I want to touch on. This is so good. I want to touch on a statement that I heard you make once. It, it rocked me. You said the job of a leader, as far as your overall point, was that healthy leaders have to descend to the dead, and the job of the leader is not to avoid death, but to prepare for the right time and place where their assassination will be of redemptive value, um, which, yeah, it's, it's become kind of one of my life quotes as someone who works in church ministry um, uh-huh. and, and does uh. a number of other things um, in the corporate world, too. So it's very reminiscent of like this Dr. King-esque redemptive yeah. suffering. Yep. I, will, I will be killed in public and... That's okay. I'm not worried about that. I've mm. seen the mountaintop. You That's know, right. that reminiscent of that sort of connection. What is the call for leaders of people who are vulnerable and trying to speak for the marginalized over the next four to eight years, depending, or in this mm. season of American life? What is the call for us to descend to the dead, to not avoid this death, whether literal or figurative? or metaphorical, how should we be acting and what should we be doing over the the course of these next four to eight years? Hmm. Wow. Well, uh, praying without ceasing and and then obeying are probably the only really adequate answers to that question, because I, I think the nature of leadership in the midst of history and especially in public is you, you don't really, I don't actually think you get to strategize that much. Sometimes there's a place, there's definitely a place for strategy and mapping out what you hope to do and when and why. Um, but so often, um, the test of leadership, it seems to me historically is, is in moments that no one could have fully foreseen that even your best strategy, you know, you're giving a speech, uh, at a March that you spent a long time planning. And then Mahalia Jackson's like, tell them about the dream. Like, you know, yes, I know what yes. you've got planned, but there's something else that God's calling you to do. And, and it's in that moment, that decision to answer that call, um, that's what matters. Not so much whatever the prepared remarks were, as it were. Um, so really, I mean, we have to be fasting and praying. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, one thing I'd want to say is I think the primary call of leaders is to embody authority. Uh, and, and I think I would urge anyone who has a community that they represent in any way, not to shy away from the call to bear authority and to speak authoritatively, um, in public and in private. And if we had, uh, hours and hours, we could talk about how the, the, the roles of prophet, priest, and king 
in Israel, all of which come to their fullness in Jesus uh, of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, uh, those three roles of authority all answer the different corners of uh, deficient authority and vulnerability. So the prophet is the one who goes to those who are exploiting power. They're in the upper left corner in my little diagram in the book and confronts them and tells the truth about what they're doing and what the results will be. The priest meets people in their suffering uh, in the in the opposite corner, vulnerability without authority, and elevates their authority, their ability to stand before God and one another. And the king calls people out of safety, out of this kind of withdrawal where you have neither authority nor vulnerability. So day to day, you know, your responsibility is to be whatever combination of prophet, priest, and king uh, is appropriate to the moment and the community that you're serving. And it's going to be different even hour to hour, probably. All that being said, there is also somehow this deep work of being willing to to empty ourselves of authority that it seems to me is necessary if our own leadership is not going to just be more idolatry. Because what the idols always promise is there's a way to not be vulnerable. And so there's something so transformative when at the right moment, when, when you could perhaps have seized power and prevented that assassination, sometimes literally, instead, you are open to that risk in trust that God can even raise the dead and can bring you know something out of nothing, can bring life out of the grave. And I don't know that we, I, I don't think we often get to strategize that at all, I, but I do think we can prepare ourselves. Um, uh, Fleming Rutledge quoted someone, I don't remember who she was quoting, uh, but I heard it from her after the, the, uh, the murders in the, in, uh, mother Emanuel church in Charleston, in which the people in that Bible study, as we know, were unbelievably kind and welcoming to Dylan Roof, the, mm-hmm. the assassin, uh, that when he began shooting, they placed themselves in front of others who were vulnerable that, you know, I mean, just unbelievable, uh, like a presence of uh, we w- presence of mind isn't even enough to describe it, like a holiness of response to evil, right? Even in the face of evil. And she said they were not ready. Like th- nobody's ready for that. You don't go to, uh, you know, Wednesday night Bible study expecting this ever, ever. But she said they were prepared. <laughs> so there's something Amen. that we will never be ready for what the hardest thing that's going to happen in our life and leadership, but we can be prepared. And the way to be prepared is in a way to die daily in our own life of prayer, in our deepest, most lasting relationships, to just constantly be, be dying to self so that when that moment comes where you realize, if I don't give up right now, I will actually reinscribe idolatry and injustice in, in an even more powerful way. And, and so I will sacrifice myself trusting God. You have to, that's got to be in our repertoire as leaders or else we're actually just another form of idol for the people we lead. Speaking of preparedness reminds me of Rosa Parks and, you know, in our sort of pop culture memory, we, we, we really limit her activism to yes. the day she decided not to move seats on a bus. But the reality is yes. she had been an activist her entire life, had grown up with parents who were activists, had been involved for decades in uh, the resistance to racial inequality. And so when that moment came, which she couldn't have anticipated, of course, but right. you, said you can't really strategize for that. Um, but she was prepared. Um, right. She was prepared to Beautiful. do that. So, wow. Yeah, that's that's wonderful reminder. Um, 
and I'm always intrigued at sort of the the proactive and constructive stance of Christians in the face of a fallen world, because oftentimes Christians are known for what they're against or what they don't want, um, and very few times do, do does the broader world recognize as much or highlight as much what Christians are for and what they contribute. So sort of along the lines of, of culture-making, recovering our creative calling, what does that look like in terms of Christians to being salt and light and contributing to culture or cultures right now, especially in light of, I just feel like the past really two years at least, um, with, with police-related uh, deaths mm. of unarmed citizens, with the, the election cycle, with the immigrant and refugee crisis. I mean, there's all this stuff going on in the world that right. screams injustice. Right. And it's sort of how do Christians constructively uh, approach this to, to be salt and light in the world? Well, it's such a good question. And I think, it, I think it's very important because um, one of the great temptations uh, in the face of violence or the, or the fear or the threat of violence is, is we just quickly, for, for very understandable reasons, we become very reactive and the moment you're being reactive, you're not being creative um, because the reality that violence seeks to impose on, on the world is a zero-sum reality or, or really all uses of force are, are a kind of zero-sum reading of the world, that, which is to say, uh, if I am to, to thrive, you must diminish. If I'm to flourish, you must fail. Um, if I'm to gain wealth, you must be impoverished. And, and so it's this just resolutely zero sum way of reading, um, our circumstances. And, and, you know, there's lots in every human being's experience and every human community's experience that seems to validate that and say, Oh, that's right. The problem is no creativity ever comes from thinking that way. It's all, it all becomes about how can I, um, through some kind of, uh, gain enough, let's say gain enough leverage and enough, uh, access to means of force that I can protect what's mine or gain what I think is rightfully mine. And, and the problem is that always generates an equal and opposite reaction from the people on the other side of that, uh, whether they occupy that position, uh, from as underdogs or overlords, it really, it really doesn't matter. And it locks everyone in this just reactive conflict. And I, I just think like 98% of social media is this 98% of our political imagination is this kind of zero sum thinking it's part of the problem. I mean, I don't think there's anything better than electoral democracy, but the problem with elections is there's zero sum. And so they draw our attention to winners and losers when in fact, all the deep work of governance is about creating positive sum environments for communities. Um, even elected officials really have to do that. Um, but all of our metaphors are, are war. And um, and I get why we have those metaphors because the world is full of war and the world's, world is full of violence. The call of Christians <laughs> is to be so deeply prayerful that we respond with creativity rather than just reaction. And, and what does that look like? Mm. Well, it looks different for every individual. I think art and music are very, uh, all the arts, uh, and literature, poetry, anything that doesn't seem to accomplish anything, but is nonetheless transformative because it's so excellent and so beautiful is really important. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. In other words, yes. in a world of zero sum, force coercion and violence. One of the most powerful witnesses we can make is do something beautiful and excellent. Um, whether that's, uh, music, whether it's art, whether it's 
I say poetry because poetry is the kind of language that doesn't seem to accomplish anything. uh, And yet it accomplishes everything. I mean, and this is why rap and spoken word poetry are so important to the thriving, I think, uh, from my vantage point of Mm -hmm. urban communities, of minority communities, because they're 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 a rescuing of language um, and an elevation of language to just extraordinary levels of creativity, um, that and that's the source of of our dignity in a way, or it's the realization of our dignity as image bearers. We aren't just reactive. We aren't just fighting back. We're creating something quite extraordinary and beautiful, um, and that affects other people. Um, but then you know we should be asking what kind of businesses do we need to start? We've got to. Uh, we need every ounce of creativity on the planet to figure out how to employ men in ways that are dignifying for men. <laughs> because um, I'll tell you, you know, the number one job in America for men right now, the num- the single largest category of job uh, is truck driver uh, and driving generally driving vehicles. Mm-hmm. And there, that is a dignified human calling in and of itself. The problem is it's about to get automated away entirely in the next probably 40 years. It looks like, and, and the largest category of jobs that men currently occupy, there's those jobs are, are going to disappear, I think, in all likelihood. Rather than being reactive about that, we've got to ask, what is what is good work look like? And what's a sustainable way to provide good work to people in every neighborhood, every region? You know, uh, I, that's what Christians need to be doing. And, and we will only have energy to do that if we somehow don't allow our energy to be siphoned off constantly just into reaction. Um, which is so tempting and I understand why we do it, but we've got to have that kind of spiritual reservoir that says we're here to actually create something better. Uh, not just, I mean, there's a place for protest. I would never want to be misheard here, but ultimately protest is clearing a path for creating something better. And that's what the church I hope can be about. Wow. Okay. Last question. I know we could talk for hours, but we don't want to keep you. But your last question, and I have to, I hate to end this way. This is kind of throwing a grenade at the end here. Okay. But <laughs> following a significant recent event, aka the election, you reiterated something that you said years ago, which is a, a very powerful statement, I, I believe, one that I resonate with. I'm grateful to be an American and I'm humbled to be an American, but I'm not proud to be an American. Mm. Explain that tension for you (laughs) as a (laughs) white Christian male. Oh man. Well, uh, I'm tempted to say what I've written stays written. And, uh, (laughs) I don't know if I could explain it better than I said it. Uh, what it is, what is it to be an American? It's to have inherited incredible things, beautiful things, all of us, no matter where we uh, sit in the even in the power hierarchy of this country and its history, there's there's a legacy here that's just extraordinary, and 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 I hope that I can claim the legacy of Rosa Parks and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in my way as an American because I think they meant their legacy to be an American legacy, even though I'm not a Black American, of course. Um, there's just incredible gifts in our history for which I'm grateful, and then the proper thing that happens when you receive a gift, a really truly good gift is humility. You're like, Oh, I don't, I don't deserve this. Like, what did I do to deserve this? And I feel that way about all kinds of things. I mean, just the physical geographical uh, beauty of this land, you know, that we've been given the the incredible diversity of this country. And what I see when I get to fly in a plane and, and, and see just the, the astonishing ecological diversity of this uh, part of the North American continent that we've, called the United States. So I'm grateful. I'm humbled, but I'm 
proud. Well, I just, it's funny to me. I've gotten pushback from Christians that I said that, that I'm not proud to be an American. I'm like, when are Christians allowed to describe ourselves as proud? I don't think that's, we're not supposed to be proud of anything, right? So in a way, I'm amazed that people find that controversial or unsettling. Um, but I'm not, I, proud would imply I am part of an unambiguous legacy of, well, I suppose, image bearing and flourishing. And when I look at all that I've inherited and all that has benefited me, that has its roots in violence, has its roots in idolatry, um, has its roots in injustice, I, I cannot possibly be proud of that. In fact, that's the other reason I'm humbled is I bear a legacy um, that I can never undo, can ne- I certainly can never atone for, um, that that is grievous and that has grieved God because God was present at all the moments of the robbing of dignity and in the making of this country. And I'm thinking of the very obvious ones like the eradication of the native populations and the enslavement of individuals from Africa. But I'm also thinking about consumerism and, and just rampant exploitation of, of people's bodies in every possible way that goes on around us all the time. And uh, that's also what it is to be an American. So here we are, <laughs> uh, wow. but we can, but we can be grateful and humbled because God has been very merciful, right? Um, so I'm great. I'm also just very grateful that God's been merciful to me and my family and my community and my nation. Uh, and I don't want to presume on that mercy. And we may find out that there are appropriate limits to God's mercy and appropriate expressions of God's wrath uh, that are ahead. And we would still be right to say, "Blessed be the name of the Lord." Andy Crouch, thank you so much for joining us on Pastor Mike. This has been so much fun. Well, <laughs> many insights, so much to chew on. I'm going to be thinking about this for a very long time. I'm so grateful to both of you uh, for hosting this, uh, not just this conversation, but all the conversations that happen here. It's really important. Thank you so much. We would like to thank Andy Crouch for joining us. To find out more information about his work and ministry, you can go to andycrouch.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at AHC, that is at AHC. As always, we want you to like and subscribe to us on all the social medias and on iTunes as well. You can go to Twitter and like us at at underscore Pastor Mike. Also like the website at Rand Network. We also want to invite you to come to the Pass the Mic private Facebook group. Go to facebook.com, look up Pass the Mic and request to get in. It's a great community, cross-denominational, cross-generational, multi-ethnic group of people pursuing racial justice and reconciliation. And as always, subscribe to us on iTunes, rate and review us. That really helps us out. If you would do that, we would certainly appreciate it. On behalf of our producer, the amazing Bo York, and my co-host, the illustrious Jamar Tisby, I'm your host, Tyler Burns, and we'll see you soon on the next Pass the Mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit pottery.com. That's P O D A S T E R Y.com. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts.